Now, if you don't know anything about our church or if you're new to our church, it's our mission statement is that we would inspire people to, to the life God dreams for them as we, as we spread his love in ever-widening circles. If you've been here before, you've heard Pastor Terry say that. Uh, we believe that God dream, has dreams for your life, and it's important that every once in a while we reiterate that because we want to remember that his dreams for us for our lives are better than the lives that we dream for ourselves. They're better physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. Um, and so as we, uh, as we look to MVP, as we start this series, what we're gonna do is we're going to explore the lives of some people who have gone, who have lived their faith journey before and how we can take things from their lives, characteristics and, and things that we can learn from them how we can uh, take those things and live out the life that God dreams for us. If you, so, um, as you look at the, if you think about the promo video for the series, you can tell it's an athletic theme. Um, but that, that actually comes from Scripture. Hebrews 12, chapter, uh, Hebrews, uh, first of all, Hebrews chapter 12, by the way, Hebrews chapter 12 comes right after Hebrews chapter 11. It's the way math works, and so we follow a number. Hebrews chapter 11 is often referred to as the Faith Hall of Fame. It's in it, there's a number of Old Testament biblical characters and their stories, and it references how they, how they inspired through their faith, lived out the life God dreams for them. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, the first verse, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Now, quick aside, just a small thing, really kind of trivial. I had a Bible school teacher years ago tell me that anytime you're reading scripture and you read the word therefore, Think about what it's there for. Think about it for a second, you'll get it. Um, it's a trigger phrase. Uh, it lets you know that the passage or the, the, the author is about to share something very substantial. A spiritual foundation is about to occur. And in Hebrews 12, the author of Hebrews says, therefore, because he's just talked about a bunch of people who lived out in faith as examples for us, and he says, therefore, live out in faith. And so we'll talk about that, how we can be inspired by uh, and live out our, in our faith. We're going to talk about a great cloud of witnesses, heroes of the faith. We're going to look at individuals who've experienced great things. Some of them are from the Bible. Some are historical figures. Some are alive. Some aren't. Some, you'll, be, you'll think, they have nothing in common with each other except for their faith. Um, and so you can follow along this morning in the life notes. If you're, if you're here in West Orange, the life notes are in a seat back pocket in the row in front of you. If you're in Paramus, they handed them to you on your way in. If you didn't get one and you just wave your hand, so one of our hosts will get them to you. Like I said, I'll see you next week. Can't wait. Okay. The first person I'd like to talk to you about this morning is a person that uh, just about none of us here have ever met. 
in fact, most of you, most of us have never even heard of this person. I'll say you, most of you have never heard, because if I'm going to talk about her, clearly I've heard of her. But uh, her, her, her name is Hilda Buntain, and she is a missionary to Calcutta, India. In, uh, Calcutta, India. Hilda was born in 1926, and in 1944, she married a man named Mark Buntain. He was a radio correspondent and a pastor in Saskatchewan, Canada. By the way, if you're ever preparing a talk, try to avoid words like Saskatchewan. <laughs> By the early 1950s, they were mixing in some missionary travels to their ministry lives uh, and traveling to places like Hong Kong and Taiwan and the Philippines, Sri Lanka and Japan. And eventually, Mark was asked to lead a one-year mission to India. By that point, the couple had a one-year-old daughter, but Mark was insistent, and so they set sail on a three-month boat journey, and they arrived in Calcutta, India in 1954. To give you a sense of what Calcutta is like, Calcutta is a city in India. It's about the size of Brooklyn. According to Google, Brooklyn has a current population of about 2.65 million people. Calcutta has a population of 25 million. If Calcutta was a state in the United States, it'd be the third most populous state, and it's the size of Brooklyn. There are people everywhere. Here's a, a quote from Hilda's biography. Three months at sea landed them in a city unlike any they had seen. Tens of thousands of people crowded the sidewalks, alleyways, and even the speedways, bound for untold destinations, yet, the limited, uh, yet with limited space to get there. Businessmen in freshly pressed suits climbed aboard rickshaws in a rush to meet clients. Women nursed their children on the curbside. Families peddled wares on the mosaic of blankets. And children amused themselves with whatever scraps of metal paper or plastic could be found splayed across the buzzing, buzzling metropolis. Whether working, playing, eating, or sleeping, it seemed that everything took place on the city streets. Most shocking were the thousands of families devoid of work, shelter, proper food, and hygiene. Elderly men lay nearly naked on raw concrete. To their right and left, parents sat listlessly, their bony frames painfully jutting forth beneath their withered, the withered skin, duly pronounced from months of hunger. And what to say of the children? There were children with cataracts or no eyes at all. Others with teeth splayed through their nose, their cleft palates hindering their ability to eat, even breathe. Babies shrieked from the pain of dysentery and toddlers crawled awkwardly with limited use of their broken or deformed limbs. It seemed in Calcutta, you either lived, you either lived well or you barely survived. And so that's the environment this young couple with a one-year-old daughter gets, uh, arrives into as they arrive in Calcutta. And being a missionary, he sets up a tent in a vacant lot that he found somewhere, and he begins to announce to people the love of Jesus. And together they committed to spend the rest of their year trying to feed people spiritually while learning the needs and desires of the poor. They realized these people needed food and education and medical assistance. They needed someone to give. They begged for someone to care. The year ended and the Batanes couldn't bring themselves to leave. So they stayed. 
In fact, they felt compelled to do more, much more for the poor. They both would later say in interviews and articles that they remember the night where their heads laid resolutely on their pillows as the cows and car horns sounded faintly in the darkness outside their window that they decided that Calcutta had become home. One day a man enters the tent that Mark's preaching in and uh, interrupts Mark and he says, Preacher, feed our bellies before you ever tell us about your God. In many ways, Mark says that night was the day their ministry in Calcutta started. Everything changed. Mark realized he, he had been given a key to open the locks of the hearts of the people in the city. If they could find a way to meet the physical needs of the people, maybe somebody would listen to what he was talking about. Mark was a, a visionary leader. He, he was passionate about helping people in need, and he had faith enough to believe God could do amazing things. His wife, Hilda, she's an administrative savant. And so they began to set, up, set about with a, a series of ambitious projects for the poor. Remember, they went there at one, for one year in 1954. In 1964, they opened their first school to 200 students. A year later, they began a feeding program, starting with school lunches for kids. Concerned about sick and injured people, they opened a small medical clinic and began give, giving people medical care. Eventually and miraculously, they would obtain some land in the downtown area of Cal Calcutta. And in 1977, by the way, 23 years after their one-year commitment, they opened their first hospital. Throughout the 70s and 80s, Mark continued to oversee what had become a massive ministry. During the 80s, they were feeding more than 10,000 people a day. They had achieved success. And in 1989, Hilda was on her way home, uh, home to the States to do some fundraising. Because when you're feeding 10,000 people a day and, and have a school and a hospital, you got to raise money. And so she's on her way home to raise money. And while she's traveling, her husband has a cranial hemorrhage and Mark passed away in 1989. And so she finds this out and uh, begins the, the trip back to Calcutta. Thankfully, at this point, it doesn't take three months to get back there. But I can't imagine how long it must have felt to get back to that situation. And so she gets back to Calcutta and begins to schedule the funeral, which eventually was attended by more than 20,000 people. For 35 years, they had worked to care for Calcutta, and now her husband, her leader, the man whose vision had inspired this whole thing, was gone. And she says her initial thought was, 35 years is enough. Makes sense. She was ready to come home. 35 years is enough, God. But to hear her tell it, she was trying to convince herself more than she was trying to convince God. And so, um, apparently in Calcutta, there is the, the cultural tradition. I, I've never been there. But the cultural tradition is when someone passes away, the loved ones stay by the grave site, the burial site, or at least the spouse does, stays by the burial site until the grave has been refilled. And so she, she remembers standing next to Mark's grave as they're shoveling the dirt back into it, and she said, God, if you'll help me, I'll stay. I can't imagine that prayer, if you'll help me, I'll stay. After the funeral, a good friend of hers who also ministered to the poor in Calcutta, you've probably heard of her, Mother Teresa, 
um, affirmed what Hilda could not deny when she said, Hilda, I will miss Mark. I'll miss him very much. We worked well together, but you've got to carry on this work. We, we, we have to continue loving the poor. And so at 63 years old, this little woman, small in stature but giant in courage, chose to stay in Calcutta and took up the mantle of leading the work. Today she's 93 years old. She still lives in the apartment they moved into in 1954. Uh, at this point, her husband's been gone for 30 years. In 2012, she gave an interview with a Canadian television show where she said her, really her greatest regret is that Mark hadn't been able to live to see the fulfillment of all he dreamt. Today, she leads a ministry called Calcutta Mercy Ministries, and they administer, they have over 100 schools, which, which educate more than 20,000 students a year. Their hospital that they opened in the late 70s now is a hub for the more than 19 rural clinics that they've opened across northern Africa. They provide free health care to 40,000 people a year. The estimates are that over 100,000 people receive health care, 40,000 of them at no cost at all. The, the meal distribution system at this point feeds about 25,000 people a day. For years, it had been their goal to figure out how to bring the love of Christ into the red light district of Calcutta. Well, what they found when they, in their continued efforts is women would not leave the, the sex trade industry if they didn't have a way to pay for their families. They were willing to trade the humiliation just to feed their families. And so in 2009, they started a laundry business in the center of the red light district and began educating women on how to work in that business so that they could bring freedom, emotional and physical freedom, to the women uh, who are in sexual slave bondage. Today, they have a school. Yeah, that's awesome. Today, they, in, the, in the middle of the red light district, there's, a, there's the laundry business, there's a school to educate women, and there is a medical clinic providing free health care. They've been able to do amazing, amazing things. This woman is a giant in the faith. Oh, one other thing. They've... <laughs> They've planted over 900 churches in northern India. If you help me, I'll stay. Hilda had the faith to believe God could do, uh, could do amazing things, and then she was willing to do the work to make it happen. James chapter 2 is a, is a famous biblical passage about faith. In his teaching, uh, James says that faith without works is dead. In essence, he's saying that if you aren't willing to put action behind your faith, then your faith isn't real. This, this, is, something I, there's, this is something I tell myself quite often, especially when I'm thinking about Paramus. Work like everything depends on you. Pray and believe that everything depends on God. And so when we, when we put action behind our faith, that's where the opportunity comes because God partners with us. I'll be honest with you, it seems to be an inefficient system that he's set up. 
but God partners with our imperfections and takes our efforts as sacrifices. And we have the, when we have the faith to believe he could do amazing things, incredible things happen. <laughs> Hilda's faith is evident because she was willing to do the work to support it. James, in, James chapter, in that James chapter 2 passage, he uses a couple of Old Testament references to illustrate the teachings. His first, his first reference is Abraham, the father of the faith. It's first century Israel. If you're going to pick somebody to use as an illustration that you want everybody to get, you're going to use Abraham. He's like, he's like on the Mount Rushmore of their, of their faith journey. Everybody knows that guy. He's the most, the, uh, most positive person you could pick. You want to talk about faith? Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. And then James does something peculiar. The second person he references is Rahab the prostitute. We'll read about her story in just a second, but it's like James is taking the absolute mountaintop person, the best person possible, and the least qualified person, and said, if you can find yourself anywhere between them on the spectrum, God can do things with your faith. Hebrews 11, in the Faith Hall of Fame, two women are referenced. The first woman referenced is Sarah. She's, the, she's, the, she's mentioned as the wife of Abraham. Of the people who are celebrated for their faith in, in Hebrews 11, the only woman is Rahab. Rahab the prostitute. Hebrews 11:31 says, By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Before I give you the, the context and the background on Rahab, let's read about her. She's introduced to us in Joshua chapter 2. Uh, I'll start reading in verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent spies from Shittim. I hate Old Testament names. <laughs> Especially that one, you got to be really careful. Go over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to, excuse me, to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I, I did not know where they came from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You can catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalk of, stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So through verse 6 in Joshua chapter 2, this is what we know about this woman. First, we know she's a Canaanite woman. She is not an Israelite. Second, we know she's a prostitute. Third, we know she's a liar. Oh, and in this room right now, we also know she's listed in the Faith Hall of Fame. Verse 7. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of Jordan. As soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, 
I know what, uh, that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to two guys whose names I can't pronounce, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts were melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. Here's, this is my favorite part. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. All right, here, at this point, now we're, we're through 12 verses. We can, know this, we can add this to the couple of things that we know about her. We, we've figured out she's a shrewd businesswoman. And also, somehow, she has come to the realization that the God of the Israelites is the God of heaven and earth. We're not told how she came to that realization, but that she did. Quick aside, you don't have to know about God to meet him. Okay, so we're, we read on, the men follow her instructions. They safely return to Joshua to give them their assessment of the spying mission and to announce to him that the Lord has surely given them in, the land into their hands. When they tell Joshua that God has surely given this land into our hands, they're quoting the prostitute. They didn't figure that out on their own. Rahab told them that. Now, we're not going to read the whole story of how the Israelites... Uh, traveled into Canaan, and we're not going to read about their victory in Jericho this morning, but if you want to read about it, it starts in, that, in, in Joshua chapter 2. You can read about it through chapter 6. It's good, it would be good for you to read this week. It's really, really awesome. But here's a tweet-length version of what happened. Rahab's words are the key that led the Israelites into the promised land. We see that Joshua leads the, the Israelites into the land. Eventually, they win the battle of Jericho. And in Joshua 6, we read that Rahab and her family are saved. It says that she goes and lives with the Israelites. In fact, Josh, Joshua 6.25 says, but Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute. By the way, do you notice they keep calling her that? It's like it's her last name. Do you think the, right, the, the Bible wants us to know what she did for a living? Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she had hid the men Joshua had sent in as spies into Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. And for a while, that's the last we hear of her. And if that's where her story ended, it's already a great story. The prostitute who had the faith to believe what the Israelites doubted. The Canaanite woman who encouraged the Israelites to walk into the land that they had been promised by God. But that's not the end of her story. More on that in a minute. Hilda the missionary. Rahab the prostitute. Two women who at first glance have virtually nothing in common. It's like I've taken the best possible person, the worst possible person, so that we can all say, if we're somewhere in the middle, God can do something through our faith. But when you peel back the onion on these two women, you realize they did have one thing in common, it was their faith. 
And through their faith, God did what other people thought impossible. And so this morning, I'd like to share some takeaways that I find after looking into the lives of these two women. And the first takeaway is that God's dreams for you are not determined by what other people think. Rahab's reputation did not inspire confidence. I told you that her story doesn't end in Joshua chapter 6. There are a couple of other biblical passages that refer to her. We've, we've, the book of James, like I said, much like Hebrews, references Rahab and her faith. And the Gospel of Matthew mentions her real briefly. It mentions her in a list of names it talks about in Matthew chapter 1. That list just happens to be the genealogy of Jesus. That's right. The Canaanite prostitute and finds faith, moves in to the land with the Israelites, marries an Israelite. She actually becomes the great-great-grandmother of King David. Now, for many people throughout the history of Christianity, this has been a tough thing to accept. Many have decided that the translation is wrong. She was an innkeeper, not a prostitute. I'm sorry, but the Bible tells us she was a prostitute. Many have decided that, how is it possible that God chose this woman who had none of the proper qualifications to be in the lineage of Christ? See, she wasn't Jewish. She was a liar. She was a prostitute. There are so many reasons why people would think she wouldn't be fit to the, be in the Messianic line, but God's dreams for her were not determined by what other people think. When Hilda's husband died, when Mark Buntain died, people questioned how this little woman could lead such a massive project. But she became the first ordained woman in India and set about to complete what they had started. In fact, in a 2014 article about her in Charisma magazine, it says that in many ways, her outreach in India has far exceeded the work of her husband. You wanna know why? Because God's dreams for her were determined by what other people think. The second takeaway I have for you this morning is God's dream for you are not determined by what you've done. Your past does not determine your future. Rahab was a prostitute. At some point in her life, she made a choice to be in the prostitution business. And that decision could have defined her. But at some point in her life, she made another decision. She chose to have faith in God. She's not the only biblical character uh, that we read about that made poor decisions and yet we find God was willing to uh, redeem their choices in their lives. In fact, the Bible is riddled with them. You wanna know why? It's explained in Romans. For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Every one of us has done things. We have all made bad decisions. The only person who didn't was Jesus. David. David's listed and is the only person described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. He's also an adulterer and a murderer. Paul wrote two thirds of the New Testament. 
he also religiously chased down and persecuted Christians and and guarded the coats of the men who were stoning Stephen. God's dreams for them are not determined by what they've done. Because Paul one day has this encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. His world is flipped flipped upside down. And so this morning, maybe you're sitting here and after hearing about Rahab or David or Paul, you're thinking that the things you've done, you're thinking about the things you've done and how they disqualify you from what God has for you. Allow me to be very clear. Those things do not disqualify from you living the life God dreams for you. Or maybe you're here this morning and you can't relate to those people at all. Maybe you were like in, you're one of those people who was in church like five days after you were born. Those of us who have the incredible testimony of having been brought up by parents who are already in the faith and we weren't exposed to some of the hurts that the world can give. That's an incredible testimony. And so maybe you're here this morning, you're like, I don't know what that's like. Hilda Montaigne was, uh, her name, I think I have it in my script, I forget, but I think it was, it was Murphy or something like that. Her parents were actually missionaries. And when she was five years old, she moved home from Canada. And she, could, she remembers being five or six or seven and praying, I will never live overseas. Well, that didn't exactly go as she planned. But maybe you're here like her, but you find yourself trapped by the words, by your words, when God is stirring in your heart for you to do the very thing you said you'll never do. The thing you didn't think was possible that you wouldn't or couldn't. God's dreams for you aren't determined by what you thought was possible or what you've done. Now, before we move on, I need to make a quick qualifying statement. Because this is, I want to be very honest and open with you. God is extremely gracious. He is merciful. He works through our decisions and our poor choices, and he forgives us. But that doesn't mean that we don't have earthly consequences to the decisions we make. You may have earthly consequences for bad decisions. It's part of, it's part of life. But God works through even the consequences for our choices. He's still working through those things to accomplish great things through us. My third takeaway this morning is that God's dreams for you are not determined by what you think is possible. If you look at the scriptural evidence, there is no way at all Rahab had any expectation of anything that would come in her future or the future of her line. Rahab made a business deal to save her family. That's what she wanted. That's what she thought was possible. But God's dreams for her aren't determined by what she thought was possible. Years later, as Hilda, Hilda's standing next to Mark's grave, if you'll help me, I'll stay. That's a prayer of faith. But think about it just for a minute. I told you just a minute ago, Hilda was an administrative savant. She understood what she was praying. She knew the logistical difficulties of the ministry. They were educating hundreds of children, feeding thousands of people, medically treating patients, not to mention providing spiritual leadership. On top of that, there was the fundraising to keep, the, the, keep, 
to be done so that she could keep the machine going and growing. If you'll help me, I'll stay. That's a prayer of faith. She fully understood what she was praying. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul writes that God is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. Let me be very clear. God, Paul isn't saying God will give you more than you could immeasurably ask for or imagine. What he's saying is he will do through you more than you could ask or imagine. He will reveal more of himself to you than you could ask or imagine because he wants to partner with you to do great things. And that, he wants to partner with you to do great things in the area that he has allowed you to have influence. And that brings us to our fourth point. Living the life God dreams for you requires faith. For years, the Israelites had waited for the fulfillment of the promise. Generations had been talked about that they're gonna have the promised land. They've now walked through the promised land for 40 years, afraid of what happens on the other side. And it's the words of a non-Jewish prostitute that inspire the faith to believe that God will give them their land. Now, I gotta be very honest with you. Sometimes we read the Bible through rose-colored glasses. And because we know what it says and what happens, we act like it makes sense. So for a second, I want you to think of yourself in Joshua's shoes when the men come back to report what they've talked to you about. Okay? So Joshua sent these two guys in the city and they returned several days later. Okay, step one, they're back. Nobody killed them. Good, check, we're good. Uh, the men expressed the confidence that they have to enter the land. Again, check, good. We're, we're, we're through the first two things, right? Everything had to be good right up until the time they actually told him what they experienced. Let me put it in language we might understand. Yeah, we went and hid out in a brothel and a prostitute who lied to the city officials uh, so we wouldn't be found told us everything was gonna be good. Puts it in a different light, doesn't it? And yet Joshua listens to all this and he's like, Yes. Can you imagine that conversation? Joshua had to be inspired by the Holy Spirit in that moment. But I'll be honest with you, that doesn't make any sense, at least from an earthly perspective. If I'm Joshua, the only thing I'm thinking about after that conversation is, I need to find two new spies. They're risking everything on the proclamation of a woman who knows nothing about God. And even though she knows nothing about God, she's the one who has faith in him because you don't know to know everything about God to believe he can do incredible things. Faith to believe in God. Faith to say that the God of Israel is the God of heaven and earth. Faith to believe that, a, uh, that God could provide a way for this little couple from Canada to provide spiritual and physical nourishment to thousands of people in a, like, in a country bigger than we could ever imagine. Faith to believe that living the life God dreams for us will accomplish his will and that his will is more important than our will. The last thing I 
last point, the fifth point, is the living life God dreams for you will likely require perseverance. God promises a lot of things, but he does not promise easy. The writer of Hebrews encouraged us to run with perseverance. All right, I know this is gonna come as a shock to you. Be ready, hold on. I'm not a runner. I know you're looking at the stage saying, that guy must run miles. No, I'm not a runner. I've talked to runners. Every time I talk to a runner, they, they all tell me about this one thing. Oh, there's this one thing that they talk about. It's called the wall. At different levels, runners, run, based on their training, they run into it, but they all eventually hit the wall. That moment where they feel like their bodies are convinced we can't go any further. Please stop. Every part of them is begging to stop. It's hard, it's in that moment that it's hardest to take another step. But what they tell me is if you push through the wall, and when you push through the wall, they find they're, that they're able to do way more than they thought was possible. The same thing is true in our faith journey. The same thing is true in our faith journey. There will be times where you feel like everything in you says, I'm done. But when you push through these, those moments, you realize just how much God wants to show you what is possible. I'll give you a very, very real practical application of what this means. For a lot of you, this coming week is going to be harder than normal. For some reason, you're going to feel tired. There's going to be things that will discourage you or you'll have some kind of distraction and you'll find yourself not wanting to go to the weekend of service thing that you signed up for. Part of you will feel like, it doesn't matter if I'm there. I didn't, I didn't know this other thing was going to happen. They can, they'll be fine without me. Somebody did, you know what? I, I'm not in a, I don't want to help people after this week. Let's be honest, it's real. By the way, it's not a surprise. You're about to do something to show the love of Jesus to, to somebody else. You're going to hit a wall. But if you'll push through the wall, if you'll go anyway, if on Sunday mornings, it's going to sound judgy, you don't hit snooze. Maybe, who knows, God could do something through your faith that is even more than you thought possible. Would you stand with me this morning? So what about you this morning? Rahab the prostitute, Hilda the missionary, and you. What are the things that you have convinced yourself are disqualifiers for you to believe that God could do what he has envisioned through you? God's, what are the things that you've done that other people say, you're no good? I've got good news for you. God's not, God's dreams for you aren't determined by what other people think. Are you here this morning and you struggle with guilt of the things you've done? 
or you have a hard time forgiving yourself. Remember, God's dreams for you aren't determined by what you've done. He wants to set you free from that. Have you felt the urge to care for people but found that you just aren't sure how, how successful you'll be or how they'll receive it or if you'll be taken seriously? God's dreams for you aren't determined by what you think is possible. To walk into the life God dreams for you, you have to believe that he can accomplish through you more than you thought. And then you have to be willing to run when the race gets difficult. Before I pray, let me, let me read Hebrews just a little differently. You are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who are watching you. They're encouraging you and they're inspiring you to live the life, uh, the, to live out the life God dreams for you in your area of destiny. You need to know that there are people watching you walk into greatness. As a Christ follower, you can be an MVP. And as you persevere, my question for you as I close is simply this. Who's gonna be inspired by you? Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for how much you love us. And I thank you that you take us as imperfect as we are and use what we have to be more than we could believe. God, I pray that you'd be honored by our sacrifice and by our willingness to put faith in you. And for those here this morning who are just struggling to believe what you think could be possible is possible. Your word tells us to ask for faith and so we ask for it. In your name we pray, amen.